They have been feared, burned, and mostly misunderstood. We went underground after nine million people were burned, hanged, and tortured. They can journey to the darkness where good and evil can become one. It's often been said that the gods of the old become the devils of the new. In actual fact, witches don't even believe in the devil, let alone worship him. They were born in an age when magic was a religion, and they live among us today. They are witches. told about the Vestal Virgins as a child, the Virgin Priestesses of the Temple of Vesta. Their work was to tend to the sacred fire within the temple, the flame a representative of the state of Rome. This ritual, solely women's work to tend to the hearth, had fatal consequences if not undertaken by the virgins. But their labour kept the home spirits warm and the goddess at peace. This everyday ritual labour to pacify the gods and to tend to the home has got me thinking and noticing more and more that it is perhaps within these actions where the everyday magic lies. So this second episode of A Common Craft will look to ritual and working with rituals. We will meet a practitioner of Wicca, a doula and a celebrant. I'll ask why the colour purple is so synonymous with the mystical worlds and women of a certain age and how to let go of things that no longer serve us. We will learn about the mother of modern witchcraft, Doreen Valiente, and her legacy on the witchcraft of today and tomorrow. And just to let you know, as in the first episode, not everyone I interview identifies as a witch, but each person can offer us an insight into work with the wonder and magic that surrounds us, whether it be our actions and choices, our home, the colours we wear, or how we are within our community. I am the wind. The sea. The evening star. I am everyone. Anyone. No one. The word witch originally means wise one, and this is what people try to aspire to be. They try to learn the wisdom of nature. They try to learn the meaning behind things. My name is Ashley Mortimer. I'm a director of the Centre for Pagan Studies. I'm a trustee of the Doreen Valiente Foundation um, and uh, I'm a practitioner of modern day Wicca. Doreen Valiente is known as the mother of modern witchcraft. She had a profound influence on the founders of the modern movement, Gerald Gardner in particular, during the 1950s, um, about the time that the witchcraft laws were repealed. And her influence um, on the way that magic and witchcraft and Wicca, as it's now become known, is practised she wrote an awful lot of material and collated and collected and basically made sense of the written material that Gerald Gardner had accumulated by that stage. And the way in which she did so made the craft structured and it gave it a framework and it made it translatable and scalable so that it could then spread in the way that it has across the world as it has done over the last few decades. The misconceptions surrounding witchcraft are legion and modern day witches are attempting to set the record straight. The most upsetting misconceptions are that witches are Satanists and that we worship Satan or the devil. And witches don't have any Satan or any devils or demons in their belief structure. People assume that witches are going to do something bad or wrong or hurt them. I have no desire to hurt anybody. That's not part of my life. Our motto is, as it harm none, do as ye will. Witches don't believe in harming any living thing. Uh, witches look like everybody else looks. They're human beings. They're going to have your general yuppie look, your Gucci skirt, your uh, fashion plate, your dungarees. 
often many witches uh, who work in the bank will wear black most of the time and no one really knows the difference because right now it's very fashionable. The Charge of the Goddess is perhaps the most well-known piece and that Dorian is largely credited with writing it, although much of it was in existence in other forms elsewhere. It comes from material written by Crowley. There is other material from Charles Godfrey Leland's Aradia, The Gospel of the Witches. And it's probably the, uh, the best, most public central litany or, or, or description of some of the theology behind modern-day witchcraft, which is a, a pagan... Um, revival and reconstruction of ancient beliefs in a polarised masculine and feminine um, divinity, the goddess and the god, as it were. So the charge of the goddess is the words that are spoken by the goddess to the people on the earth. Hear ye the words of the star goddess, she in the dust of whose feet are the hosts of heaven, whose body encircleth the universe. I, who am I, the beauty of the green earth and the white moon among the stars and the mystery of the waters and the heart's desire call unto thy soul, arise and come unto me. For I am the soul of nature who giveth life to the universe. For me all things proceed and unto me must all things return. And before my face, beloved of gods and mortals, Thine inmost divine self shall be enfolded in the rapture of infinite joy. Let my worship be within the heart that rejoiceth. For behold, all acts of love and pleasure are my rituals. And therefore let there be beauty and strength, power and compassion, honour and humility, mirth and reverence within you. And thou who thinkest to seek for me, know thy seeking and yearning shall avail thee not unless thou know this mystery, that if that which thou seekest thou findest not within thee, thou will never find it without thee. For behold, I have been with thee from the beginning, and I am that which is attained at the end of desire. Hail Aradia! Goddess of the East, powers of air, we invoke you and call upon you. By the breath that is her spirit, send forth your light. You know, there's a number of interviews uh, where Doreen speaks about such things, and she says that, that largely the, through the 1940s, 30s, 40s and 50s, particularly during the war years and thereafter, the austerity that, that, that British culture suffered or, or was enforced upon engendered quite a few things. There was a, quite a lot of authoritarianism, so that by the 1960s, people were more inclined to experiment with with um, breaking out of their cultural boundaries. And feminism was very much one of those movements that um, that did exactly that. It, it, it wasn't rebelling for the sake of rebellion. It, it was been a long time coming. And of course, this idea of a, of a religion that, um, that acknowledges a feminine goddess as equal, if not... Uh, in ascendance over a, over a masculine patriarchal deity, then that obviously c catches up with that current. And as Doreen said, it was a fertile ground for something like the craft as it was to, to grow while people were experimenting, you know, spiritually with uh, liberal attitudes to sociality, to um, recreation, sexuality, drugs, gender, and feminism and so on. So it, the two kind of, they're not, they're not synonymous with each other, but they're certainly complementary. The idea of a, of a witchcraft cult um, that reveres a goddess is clearly uh, something that, that, that's in harmony with feminism. Doreen clearly knew quite a bit about occultism prior to meeting Gerald Gardner. So let's just blow that myth now that Gerald taught Doreen everything and she was some sort of innocent person who'd come into it. Um, Doreen had obviously studied, and some of her early notebooks reveal that, um, that she was studying the occult and I think she was somewhat, and she said herself later, that she was somewhat frustrated that 
discovering information about how to work magical occult rituals wasn't easy and that libraries and, and that those who she said that those who had the knowledge had it all stuffed in a chest and they were all firmly sat on top of it and it was time to blow that out so she came to meet gerald because she read a magazine article in which he was um promoting his museum and clearly the undercurrent of that was that he was letting people know that he was running up the banner saying that witchcraft still exists and that you know he was a clear place to go and find it and she did what others did and wrote him a letter and I think she wrote him a letter that was of enough significance that he wanted to meet her. And it, it was from there in the early 1950s that uh, the next year he took her to Stonehenge to watch the Druids or to take part in the Druid um, Midsummer Ceremony. And, uh, and she thereafter initiated her into the craft and gave her... Um, well, it unleashed her upon the craft, really, I think. I think he was surprised. I think he saw her as a promising student and she stood up and, and took challenge to him with some of the things he was saying that she knew to be historically inaccurate and uh, and he kind of let her run with it and the result was she basically organised him.
A doula is somebody who supports somebody else, either singular or in the family setup, through a major transition of life. And it can be birth and it can be death. My uh, work is with uh, birth and surrounding the transition of a woman into a mother. And um, we start off by working with the pregnant person and her family for uh, in the antenatal period. And then 10 days before the estimated due date, uh, I go on call and I stay on call until the woman gives birth. And then I do postnatal visits afterwards until I'm happy with um, the integration of the new person into the family. That's basically it. It's such a good phrase, the transition into becoming a mother because I don't I hadn't realized until I became one what an enormous change mm. that is and that it's it's the birth of the child but it's the birth of the mother as well when you give birth and I think having someone there to see you through that transition who's experienced it and can be there consistently by your side it's it's such a powerful thing and it felt so necessary to have someone who I could trust and who I'd built a relationship with to see that through. And years ago, women had a community which they don't have anymore. And when the, at probably the end of the Second World War, people were, all the soldiers came home, they wanted the women out of the workplace. But then, as time has gone on, society's changed, women have gone back into the workplace and now they are encouraged to be in the workplace and all that culture, that women's law, L-O-R-E, has gone. And there's only, you know, we don't hang out the washing and chat to the neighbour next door. Everybody, well, you, <laughs> most lucky. people don't, unless you're very lucky. Yeah. And we don't talk about, oh, little Jimmy's got the mumps. Oh, well, if you do this and you do that, then that'll help little Jimmy. Yeah. But we don't do that anymore. You know, when my kids got chicken pops, I put some oatmeal and some calendula flowers and some lavender flowers into a sock and chucked them in the bath. <laughs> because fortunately, my mother had taught me how to do that. You just don't, we don't talk about this anymore. And it's a shame because we've lost so much of our women's knowledge. I think I'd, um, I'd known of the idea of a doula for a long time and I'm not quite sure where that had come to my mind. I think possibly um, reading about Ina Mae Gaskin's practice, although she's a midwife, um, but I, I think... I'd heard about her a long time ago and recognised that birth should not be a medicalised event unless something happens in which it becomes one. Um, and so it felt like home birth was something that I wanted to go for. Was um, and the kind of yeah the ideal circumstances. Um, and that kind of reading about home birth, it seemed like people advised, well, you should have a doula. So some, because you can't have the continuity of care from a, a midwife in the community because they have to change shifts or they might not be enough on call, I thought having a doula would be someone who'd be there consistently all the way through. Uh, so I was attending these um, antenatal yoga classes. And so we met that way and I think found out that Dee was also a doula when I started those.
the bones and then the back. Here's your decapitant mannequin, Mr. Clint. him of his baby. Here's your decapitant mannequin, Mr. Clint. Give him five and like this black. Just like this. No! I mean, if we're going to call contemporary witchcraft the, the advent of, of the wicker, and neither Dorian nor Gerald called it wicker, let's, let's say that. They, Gerald described the people in it as the wicker, meaning the wise people. Um, if we're going to say that that 19, early 1950s, probably late 40s in Gerald's case, that period was, was where wicker as we know it developed, because Gerald was certainly initiated into something in the New Forest in the late 1930s. So he'd been practising or working or thinking about and writing about the subject for probably eight or ten years before he really got rolling with it. So um, is Doreen's legacy the longest? No, Gerald's is, is, is longer than that by probably 15 years or so. So, uh, but, but Doreen's legacy is quite complete because Doreen's influence is so profound that you, you would struggle to go to even an open pagan celebration anywhere in the world without hearing words that Doreen had brought to the, to the table, as it were. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, she probably deserves the title of sort of godmother of modern paganism as well as mother of modern witchcraft. This coven gathers together often and follows the procedures passed down through the ages. Here, they prepare to consecrate the earth, for this is a time of joining, of becoming, and of singing. We all come from the goddess, and to her we shall return. There is so much energy and, and love that goes around, that comes out of the voices, and even those of us who can't carry a tune to save our life sound great. And you just... You feel that, that love there, you know, in yourself and in your friends. That's what, that's what singing does for me anyway. Doreen firmly believed everyone had a right to, to develop their own spirituality and their own relationship with the deities and with the goddess, regardless of whether you were a member of the craft and initiated secretly even through these ceremonies into this, this secret underground cult or not. And the other thing is, is that she and Gerald had a bit of a fallout in the late 1950s. So they were only really working and operating magically together for four or five years. So all of this stuff you know, that, that happened between the two of them was, was over a short period of time. And she went off and did her other thing, did other things thereafter. All magical and joined other orders and very other things. But I don't think Doreen would have ever considered herself a Wiccan, uh, other than perhaps during that period when she was with Gerald. So she really pioneered that idea of doing your own thing and forging ahead and figuring it out for yourself. And she was very firm about that. Gerald was right. I mean, Gerald's non-fiction books, uh, which he published after the witchcraft laws were repealed, they talk about historical witchcraft and they, they kind of skip around the skirt about the issue a bit and the witch does this and witches do that and that sort of thing. Whereas Doreen, when she wrote her, I suppose, the title of her book is a foil to Gardner's Witchcraft Today. Doreen wrote a book. 20, 30 years later, called Witchcraft for Tomorrow. And it was very firmly in uh, thrust at, at, at people who had developed this interest in the spiritual current and perhaps had, had somehow felt their calling or their drawing to the goddess. And she wanted to see to it that people had an opportunity to to practice and, and practically do something that developed their spiritual 
aims. And she didn't see that the only way to do that was to be trained, taught and initiated into the secret underground cult. Deep, black, mineral, not crystalline, but brittle. An igneous, felsic oracle, formed from eruptions and cooled by the ancient air, within which tools were formed from dark moons. The sharpest known to man cut one way a grey haze, the other a black mirror, a passive void, a gazing invitation, a voyage, a truth, an alternate perspective, even a conversation with angels, fortune's bounty in a rock. Kind of preeminent 
dye of the ancient world um, was a sort of very dark purplish red um, and it was made on the coast of the Mediterranean um, from um, the glands of two different kinds of, of mollusks that are native to the Mediterranean and these mollusks would have to be caught and then sort of cracked open and you could kind of squeeze a, a drop of um liquid out of this gland that runs over there um you know just inside their, their shells and this um liquid if you put it onto a piece of cloth and expose that cloth to sunlight um it changes it goes yellow and then green and then blue and then finally settles at this kind of purple color and this dye just was a shorthand for power um, in um, Byzantine culture, in Roman culture, um, and was just really sort of beloved by by emperors and was also incredibly expensive because the more desirable it became, the scarcer and scarcer the mollusks became because they were just being hunted to extinction. And actually, you know, now if you, um, archaeologists have found the kind of evidence for these dye works um, in you know, at, in, in towns or usually just on the outskirts of, of towns on, on the coast of the Mediterranean. Um, and, you know, there are literally the discarded shells form hills, you know, like geographical features because so many of them were being caught and processed into dye. Um, but this um, shorthand of purple meaning power, you know, really was taken very seriously by people at the time. There are also stories kind of as the mollusks became scarcer and scarcer, there are also stories of kind of emperors, you know, complaining that they can't afford, that even they can't afford to buy their wives um, to rein purple cloth because it became as expensive or even more expensive um, per weight than, than gold. Um, so it really was quite phenomenal. But this link with, with power um, persisted even even after um, Tyrian purple became really scarce, and you know, almost the the secret to its manufacture was was lost in the in the mid fifteenth century, or largely lost in the mid fifteenth century. Um, you know, and people were kind of finding workarounds. So there were purple dyes, and um, you know, uh, dyes that could be um, made using um, different kinds of of, of uh, lichens and then stuff like that um, as kind of workarounds. But the next um, big moment um, in purple's history, which I think is also relevant to its kind of association with spirituality and power, comes um, in the 19th century when um, a young chemist called William Henry Perkin is messing around um, in his father's attic during the spring holidays in 1856 in East London. And he um, is fascinated um, by um, quinine, which is a cure for malaria, which could at the time only be synthesized um, from a certain type of tree that only grew in, um, in the Americas. And quinine um, and its you know, its properties, you know, as, as being an anti-malarial was really um, incredibly important at the time because malaria um, cost the British Empire um, a great deal of money. They had to ship it out um, from the Americas that had to be sort of processed. Um, but also, you know, there were so many, you know, people going um, to countries that, that um, where they could catch malaria, that it was taking a lot of sort of um, you know, soldiers and traders. It was kind of taking them out of out of commission, and so you know there was a real premium on this cure. And so it was believed and it was hoped that if someone could find a way of um, of synthesizing quinine without this bark um, from this tree, um, that that would be kind of a, a hugely profitable enterprise. And so he, what he decided is that he felt that um, the raw material for quinine might lie in coal tar, which was kind of a, a relatively abundant byproduct of, of, you know, of gas lighting at the time. And he started messing around with this um, and he never did manage to find a uh, synthetic um, quinine. But what he found instead, completely by chance, was what would become the first aniline dye. And this was a purple colour, a really sort of vivid purple that was called mauve um, and became immensely fashionable in um, Victorian England. It was worn by Queen Victoria herself. It was worn by the Empress Eugenie. And it really sort of um, just completely took off and became the height of fashion um, in kind of 1857, 1858. Um, so much so that um, uh, Punch, a satirical newspaper at the time, complained that London had caught the mauve measles because so many people were wearing mauve. Um, but I think 
Um, this often happens with colours that become incredibly fashionable and just completely saturate the market in a way that mauve was able to do since it was suddenly very freely available and relatively cheap um, and so incredibly fashionable. Um, it's kind of um, a bit of a problem for colours because they become so associated with a particular time that they then kind of go through this fashion cycle where they kind of go completely out of fashion. And that's what happened to um, to purples and, and mauve. They became kind of associated with um, a certain age group of women. Um, and therefore, purple really became very, you know, a few years later, purple kind of tipped over and became very unfashionable. And I think this is when, uh, this is the time when it really begins to um have these associations in some way in, in a kind of negative sense almost with spirituality um, and that kind of homespun um, spiritual aesthetic because you have this certain group of women who are still very you know certain age group of women who are still very loyal to mauve the color that was so fashionable in, in the 1850s and then you've got kind of the spiritualist movement um, coming along and you have people like um Conan Doyle, who becomes very interested in spiritualism, you've got this whole kind of section of society that really um, buy into this way of thinking. And again, it becomes very fashionable. Um, and I think there's just sort of a natural a, a natural resonance between um, these two colours, you know, power, spirituality, um, and also this kind of fading very rapidly fading fashionability of this particular kind of shade of purple that's kind of a little bit of a, a sort of slightly pale quality street uh, purple um, shade, but really quite vivid. Some modern day witches argue that ritual needs to adapt to the times to take on a more contemporary guise. But as in anything, tradition is hard to cast aside. And to some people, the rewards are worth the risks of ridicule. It's something that brings out the best in me. It's really hard to, to describe um, how I feel in circle and how I feel afterwards. It's, it's kind of like runner's high. <laughs> really. Feel it flowing around through the hand. Purples were also associated with um, homosexuality as well. You know, the love that dare not speak its name. There was this kind of idea of wearing um, lavender gloves and, and sort of certain, because purples had become associated in some way with women, um, both because it had become hugely fashionable, but also because, um, or, or as part of this, um, shades of pale purple were one of the few colours that women could wear um, when they were coming out of mourning, when they were coming out of deep mourning into kind of lesser degrees of mourning. They began to be able to wear a few more colours and, and one of the colours they could wear was sort of pale, shades of pale purple. And so, um, you know, and, and this was a time when the, the cult of mourning, you know, was at its height. And so women were very often conspicuously wearing purple and in this way it kind of it, it became associated with femininity and you get this you know group of of men who are who are sort of fighting against um you know societal restrictions um who kind of adopt um that color uh, as, as as part of their kind of signaling of identity and kind of fighting against the the, the you know the state the status quo, um, so yeah, they, they, it does sort of really interesting tie into to gender norms, particularly in that era. Singing, oh, in a 
I'm Kelly Tomlin. Um, I have, I'm a celebrant, um, which is uh, someone who creates bespoke ceremonies, uh, usually for kind of big rites of passage, weddings, funerals, that kind of thing. But I also work within the community, um, creating kind of seasonal celebrations. And um, that's been a big part of my life for a long time now. Um, I'm also a writer some of the time and I'm a mom and yeah. <laughs> How did you um, come to this line of work? Well, I've been sort of, I started dabbling in ceremonies and ritual and all that kind of stuff when I was um, a teenager. So I came to um, paganism through Wicca, which I think a lot of people do. Um, that's the avenue they take um, when they first discover what it is and that it exists um so I came to it from a very kind of book-based beginning I read a lot about it I would chat with a few people that you know that were also interested and then I went I went to university I was I became involved in kind of the London pagan scene which is uh, quite big um, there's the pagan federation things like that and they hold quite a lot of big public rituals for the different um, festivals on the wheel of the year so that was my first introduction to larger scale ritual, larger scale ceremony, more than just me in my room trying out things I'd read in a book. And um, I became involved with a group that very much liked to put on events and rituals out in the open uh, rather than in halls and things. Um, and for a good couple of years, I kind of worked with them and all the rituals would be kind of co-created. So we'd all get involved and we'd all take parts. And so that was kind of my almost training ground, I suppose. And then I moved away from London and left a lot of that behind for a while um, and was just concentrating on starting a new life. Um, and then I decided to get married um, and me and my husband wanted a ceremony that reflected who we were and the different beliefs and um, things that were important to us and that really resonated and a church ceremony wouldn't have done that and neither did the kind of legal you know, ceremony that comes from a registrar and so we started looking into celebrants and um, we had a wonderful day. We found a lovely woman. We had a lovely day. And sort of coming out of that, I had just had this niggling sense of putting the two together, what I'd done in the past and what was happening in the present. I was like, ah, oh, this, I could do that. Maybe I could do that. And so I did a training course um, with Glenny Kindred um, and Annie Keeley in Derbyshire. And since then, I've been sort of putting it out there that this is something I love to do. And what was lovely is their training was all about finding out who you were as a celebrant, not teaching me a particular method. So I was able to sort of generate my own craft, as it were. And that's kind of what I offer now. So, Could you demystify what um, a ritual is or can be or the potential of it? Absolutely. Oh, I think. I hope. <laughs> um, so ritual is I think for a lot of people it's intrinsically tied to the idea of religion which is understandable because all religions have their rituals and a ritual is essentially just a repeated action or repeated words um, that are given, spoken, done with a specific intention in mind um, and that's it, that's it at its very base level and religions obviously use these to help people to connect to what it is they're all about um, but rituals do have a life kind of outside of that that we don't tend to think about. Things like blowing out birthday candles on a cake. Things like lighting a candle because you're thinking about somebody or because someone's passed away. These tiny little actions that when we do them feel very normal and mundane and unimportant in a way are rituals in themselves because we are doing this very simple action with a very specific intention in mind and a lot of them are repeated annually or every time a certain something happens so i would say that a ritual is a repeated action or repeated words that are given that are performed with intention with a very specific intention and it can be as complex and as dramatic and as elaborate or as simple and as short as you want to make it and as resonates for you.
And of course, the documents that we've been talking about, Doreen's work on Gerald's rituals, still exist, and, and we, we, we look after them, and they are there to be to be looked at and to be exhibited and to be understood and, and, and read about, and the, the information's there. And of course, Doreen was a collector of bits and bobs and trinkets, some of which are rather fantastic, you know, mm. homemade magical tools and things. I think there, there is, there's a resourcefulness to people who work with magic, which is also... Um, very endearing and heartwarming, um, especially for people who don't know and are intrigued and think that they must go out and buy certain objects. Um, my, my very favourite, I think it actually is my favourite of the, the artefacts that I, I would exhibit, is an old piece of floorboard that Doreen had a Woolworths pyrography set and had created her pentagram and inset it with some uh, some beads uh, and, and inscribed her magical markings on it and it's quite plainly an old floorboard and I think the humbleness of it the humility of it and the fact that it's that really does say that you know that, that, that putting your own care and your own love and your own attention into something directing your will as it were is a far more potent force and to see that somebody of the supposed stature of Doreen Valiente she was a very humble person lived in a one bedroom flat Doreen that humility, I suppose, it, it, it is a real, it's a real lesson. It's a solitary lesson, and people can relate to that. I think that's one of the things that makes Doreen so endearingly popular in pagan culture because she can be seen as somebody... She's like us. She's one of us. She's not a celebrity. She's not Beyonce. She's, you know, as she said herself, oh, I'm not, a, I'm not nothing. I'm just a housewife from Brighton. And you have that warmth to Doreen that comes over in her interviews, that she's quite... Uh, she's quite hum very human, very personable. And she has a style of writing as well, which makes you feel like she's writing just for you. And I, I think that's, I think that's important. And that humility is important. And, and it isn't about who initiated you or, um, you know, who your celebrity pagan mates are or how encrusted with diamonds your platinum wanders. It's about whether you can do the magic or not, and whether you're basically a kind and balanced and happy person. <laughs> Witches. They do spells and stuff, which is so much cooler than slaying. Why might ritual or marking events in one's life be important or helpful? I think it's it's incredibly important. I think it's more important than we give it credit for. We live in a world where time is speeding up always and life is getting busier and faster and more and more overwhelming. Um, and a way of just kind of stepping back from that 
and giving ourselves some space to breathe and some space to really be in our lives and really be in our bodies and really really kind of just be present is to mark these rites of passage and obviously we're used to marking things like weddings and we're used to marking uh, deaths with a funeral and we're used to marking things like birthdays but there are so many other little moments that are incredibly important to us things like moving house or changing job or having a baby Um, and even you know below that or not below that but even on another level from that there's things like having another a new haircut changing your wardrobe letting go of a friendship, you know, all these things that mean a heck of a lot to us on an emotional level and on a spiritual level, but that we often just let fly past us because we're too busy getting on with all the other everyday things. So ritual is kind of marking these things with a ceremony, with a ritual is a way of saying, this is important. This is my life. This is important. And I'm going to take some time to connect to what is happening right here, right now, and really know myself better and know this moment better so that hopefully I can go on to other moments better equipped and more fully myself. We are families, we are men and women and children. The misconceptions go on and on and on and of course we take responsibility for that. And that's what we are trying to do now, help people to understand us so that we are not the disposal for the ills of the earth. Because if they're looking for evil in us, they're looking in the wrong place. Um, when you perform something with intention, you, have to, you, are, you are immediately slipping into this kind of more aware consciousness. And you do that without realising you're doing it. I, you know, there are things you can do to help. You can centre yourself, you can meditate. There, everyone has their own little triggers. But I think even without those preparations in place, if we know what our intention is and we know what the action or the words are going to be, then putting those two together allows us to slip into that place of heightened awareness because we've got clarity, we've got focus, we've given it space, we've taken that time, we're giving it the space. And that opens us up to this heightened awareness and this heightened understanding of ourself and of the present moment and that for me is what intuition is it's just going that little bit deeper and giving ourselves that little bit of clarity to see things as they are not as the stories that are buzzing around us tell us they are I love the idea of ritual for changing a wardrobe, rituals for, <laughs> yeah, cutting your hair, ritual for, I don't know, identifying something, a pattern that no longer serves you and wanting yep. to let that go. What Could you describe what that might be or how that might manifest? Absolutely, yeah. Um, it, I mean, it's all about the person and what resonates with you. And I always say that you should try a million different ways of, of performing ritual before you settle on one and maybe never settle on one um, because there's might be a different way for a different thing but yeah say you were trying to let go of a pattern or a person or something that just wasn't serving you anymore um, you could quite easily carve out some time in your day choose a place let's say outdoors that you'd like to go um preferably near a watercourse so if you live near a stream or you live near um, a river or even if you just live near a pond or a lake or just even a big puddle it's you know just some, some sense of water take yourself there at a time when you're not going to be rushing somewhere else you know you've carved out this time particularly and go with the intention in mind that that is what you're going to do you're going to face this pattern that is no longer serving you want to just face what it is and let it go and it can be as simple as that you don't need to know why you don't need to know how you don't need to have a 12-step plan of how you're going to achieve it um this is just about marking the fact that that's what you want to happen and then take yourself out to this place and maybe look around i think nature often offers us exactly what we need for every moment if we've we're in that place of awareness and we've opened our eyes and we're looking for it um so i'll often go out and i'll ask for the thing that i'm looking for you know i i need something to represent um this particular person or this particular pattern or i need something to help me let go and then when you find that thing it might be a stone or a stick or you might have brought something from home that really resonates that you think actually no this is the thing um take it to the water 
and just stand with it and with the water for a while and just be in that space and see what comes up and you don't have to be saying anything you don't have to be doing anything you can just be listening into yourself if that's too uncomfortable just look around just see what's presenting itself what the world is offering you because there's probably going to be medicine in that as well and then when you feel ready you can say something if you feel moved to you might want to speak your intention aloud i let go of this now simple as that or you can just keep it all internal you can say that in your mind and release that thing that you've um, been holding into the water because water is a wonderful cleanser water is a wonderful carrier of things we don't want to carry or can no longer carry and watch it go and take another minute give yourself space around it take another minute to just acknowledge that this is what you've done and then then you're finished that's all you need to do go home and remember it but don't cling on to it and just be open to what comes next Mm, that's really lovely yeah it's wonderful
In this episode of A Common Craft, I interviewed Ashley Mortimer, Gassia St. Clair, Deco, Emily Wilczek and Baby Ida, and Kelly Tomlin. The Scrying Mirror character was read by Isabel Jones. The song incantations were composed by myself, Freya Barlow and Isabel Jones. And Hawthorne kindly gave their track in Mighty Revelation from their album Red Goddess. Additional music was by Comus, Lena Platonos, Helen Banks, Third Ear Band, Eden Arbez, and Daniel Kobielka. This is episode two of four podcasts, commissioned for Waking the Witch, an exhibition looking at the importance of craft, ritual, and the land on the ever-shifting archetype of the witch. These men and women who can so easily sail into the mystic world are not to be feared, they are to be understood, for they may have knowledge that can benefit us all, helping us to comprehend the boundaries of our real world a little more fully. The ancient ways live on. Your gods still exist as long as you believe. Witches, echoes of a magical past, 